0: wanted to have your own podcast, but you just didn't know where to start. I know that it used to be me until I uh, was told about Anchor.fm. Anchor.fm is one of the best podcasting platforms out there because it's free. They help you with distribution, getting onto all the various podcasting platforms. They have tools for editing and for creating all the podcasts, uh, and they even have monetization tools. It's a really, really great app and website. I highly recommend it. If you want to get your own podcast going, go and download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. I can't recommend them highly enough. So download that free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm so you can get started making your own podcast. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of filter on this show. We recognize that the world can be a confusing place to live in. And so what I seek to do on this show is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our confusing world so that you can face the chaos of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. We live in an age of deconstruction when the traditional ideas about truth, morality, and other foundational concepts are being rapidly abandoned. The deconstructionist project has no limits. Furthermore, it has no final solution for what will be built in the place of what was torn down. Therefore, people are inevitably driven to a life of emptiness and cynicism since they have no solid grounding to stand upon. My guest on today's show argues that our culture must be challenged to live the examined life, a way of living that evaluates the worthiness of our culture's dominant values and asks if there's a better way to live. I'm glad to welcome Oz Guinness back to the podcast to discuss his latest book, The Great Quest, Invitation to an Examined Life and a Sure Path to Meaning. We discuss the problem of our culture's deconstruction cynicism, how the attempts to live without meaning in life are futile, and how Christians can be confident in the gospel's power. Oz Guinness is the author or editor of more than 30 books, including The Dust of Death, The Call, Fool's Talk, and the Magna Carta of Humanity. A frequent speaker and prominent social critic, he has addressed audiences worldwide, from the British House of Commons to the U.S. Congress to the St. Petersburg Parliament. He is a senior fellow at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics and was the founder of the Trinity Forum. Before we dive into this episode, let me encourage you to subscribe to our email list so that you can get the latest content, content sent directly to your inbox. Visit the link in the show notes and you can sign up on my website. Also, be sure that you're subscribed to Filter wherever you get your podcasts so that you can get all future episodes right on your homepage. If you're helped by this content, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review or shared this show with your friends. Leave Filter a five-star review on Spotify and leave a rating as well on Apple Podcasts. It'll only take a minute of your time, and when you take these simple steps, it greatly helps us to get the message of biblical clarity out to more people. Well, without any further delay, let's jump into my conversation with Oz Guinness. Oz, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you.
1: Great pleasure to be back.
0: Well, really happy to have you here again. It's uh, always a pleasure to get to talk to you. And we're uh, here today to talk about your newest book, which is The Great Quest. Uh, Just recently came out with IVP. Tell us about who you wrote this book for.
1: Well, it's principally written for people who are searching for the meaning of life, you know, that we we call seekers and so on. But I hope it will also be of interest to Christians who understand why they believe what they believe, and then some who want to give the book to friends who are interested in searching themselves. So it's a book for seekers, primarily, but also for Christians.
0: Yeah, interesting. Interesting. And so, writing this book, to Seekers, what is your uh, aim in reaching them with? What, what is your appeal to, the, to those who might be uh, interested in reading it?
1: Well, I want to show how to think through as a thinking person is thoroughly rational and responsible and to set out the path people can take. But the background for me, we're clearly at a moment of Western crisis the so-called decline of the West and America's going through a major crisis. And so too is the church. So you look at all the polls about the rising nuns and the so-called ex-Christians and ex-evangelicals. Now I don't take a lot of it seriously because a lot of it is just people copying what other people think. And I love the old saying, forget the polls and think for yourself because if the Christian faith is true, it would be true if nobody believed it. And the whole world thought it was awful. And equally, if it were false, it wouldn't be worth believing at all. So I'm trying to stand across the the tide of people are just following the crowd and challenging people to really think for themselves.
0: Interesting. It's an invitation to trying to seek out the answers to the biggest questions of life and that's my been that's been my um experience reading the book and what you're trying to do but do you think that people as you described we're experiencing a decline society these uh these nuns as they're so called and people just copying one another do you think that people are uh many people are really even asking those big questions anymore or do you think that a lot of people are just going along life, they don't really care, or they're just not worried about those questions because they're filling themselves up with all the modern luxuries that we have today.
1: Mm -hmm. No, you're exactly right. As I put it, we have too much in the modern world to live with and too little sense of what we should be living for. And people really aren't thinking. Many people in the crisis just keeping their heads down and getting on with their own small worlds. And of course. You have incredible scorn from the elites. So I'm an Oxford man, both my home and my university. But if you look at the Oxford short introduction to the meaning of life, it says that the question of the meaning of life is for madmen or comedians. Hmm. That is absolutely stupid. If you listen to a conversation like we're having, or go to a film or read a book, Everything we say and read and listen to assumes meaning. And if that's true of trivial things like reading a sentence, how much more is that true of life itself? So although it's against the tide, I realize that you're exactly right. (laughs) There are always, thank God, people who are seeking, who take my life more seriously, and I'm writing for them.
0: Mm. Do you think that even among the portions of our society that, uh, that live their life as though they aren't trying to seek the answers to those big questions, even among them, whenever you look at our culture, do you think that there are signs and evidence that they are hungry for those answers or that they are hungry and trying to find satisfaction to their life that, uh, isn't being filled because they don't have an overarching meaning in their life?
1: I don't think they articulate it with the eloquence that you just have, but I meet people like that all the time. I was at a dinner in the Bay Area with people highly successful in Silicon Valley. And six people came up to me over the course of the dinner and the conversation afterwards, separately, and said, there must be something more. You know, mm-hmm. I've reached a point in my life when I know there must be something more. And so many people realize whether it's our comforts or success, I've had that said to me by an Olympic gold medalist in the swimming world, in fact, with a whole string of medals, you know, many, many people realize their life isn't enough. They want something deeper. So I am totally confident. People will never ever lose the basic hunger to know about the meaning of life. And the simple fact is that the quest for meaning is incredibly important. And then of course you take cultural things, you take something like human dignity, human rights. What undergirds it? If you look, say, at the basis of that in atheism, they don't have any basis for that. And it's only in the Jewish and Christian understanding. So some of the ideas, which is comparative, pers- person searching, wants to look across all the possible answers and see which is the most adequate and the most illuminating. You know, again and again, for all sorts of reasons. I know from experience there are many, many people who are searching. It may not be New York Times number one bestseller, um, but it'll meet. I know a very human need.
0: Mm-hmm. I agree with you. I, I think that the need that people have for meaning in life—to know that their life matters, that that them being here on this earth has any significant to it, the significance to it—that doesn't go away no matter how much you try to fill it with, um, with 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 calories or entertainment or anything else. And even if you can't articulate it or you actively deny it, it, it that, that need doesn't go away. It's similar to how my dog doesn't articulate any of the needs that she has, but she still lives them out. And mm-hmm. I think similarly, we we have a need for meaning almost um, uh, in, in our nature. And so since that need doesn't go away,
1: And even in my background in social sciences, it used to be said, everyone has a need for meaning, make sense of the world, and belonging. You know, find security in life. And I would add the third one, biblically, a storyline. Our identity and sense of purpose comes from whatever faith and philosophy we have and its ability to give us a view of the world, yes, but a storyline to our own lives. So meaning, belonging, storyline, those things are inescapable.
0: Exactly. And so that goes right along with what what I was wanting to ask you, which is that, so since these things don't, or the need for these things don't go away, whenever a culture turns away from uh, its, as Schaefer said, its Christian consensus that it once had to, what what is it going to turn to, to find, satisfaction that it needs for those things for meaning, belonging, and a storyline. What do you see people turning to? What are the what are the big uh things that people are trying to fill themselves with today?
1: Well I have to be candid as a Christian. Much of the turning away is a revulsion against the hypocrisies and scandals and evils of the church. You know, I think the French Revolution was the greatest example of that. But there's a huge part of our culture. We don't want God if it means X, Y, and Z. So coming from Ireland, the appalling oppression of the Catholic Church in the Irish orphanages or in Canada, the treatment of the indigenous people or here the scandals of the television evangelists and many others. These things have turned people off. So we who are followers of Jesus, I've got to start by saying, They're partly turned off by us. But then we look around the alternatives today. You know, I'm writing a a shorter thing now on some of the hostile anti-Western, anti-Christian ideologies. You take the red wave of classical and cultural Marxism. Or you take the rainbow wave coming from the sexual revolution with its open aim of overcoming the church or you take the so-called black wave, in other words, the radical Islamists, and their attempt not only to conquer the little Satan, Israel, but to conquer the great Satan, America and the West. So there have never been more powerful philosophies, ideologies that are counter Western and anti-Christian in a strong way. And then of course, all the other alternatives so this is an extraordinary moment for people to think it through for themselves.
0: One of the things that I've always looked at as one of the symptoms of our culture that is, is sick and struggling to find meaning that's been lost with, uh, the, with Christianity being pushed to the margins is, uh, is an ongoing underlying cynicism, particularly among, uh, among I would say, my, my generation, the millennials. I think that uh, cynicism may, might even be a virtue uh, in the eyes of millennials. And in uh, the first chapter of your book, you, one of the first statements you wrote that really struck me was you said, man cannot live on cynicism alone. So I'm guessing that, would you agree with that, that you think that, uh, that this pervasive cynicism we see among people is one of the signs of the sickness we have due to a loss of meaning?
1: No, you put it well. And I think it's directly the child of postmodernism. Because when you've deconstructed things, you, you've seen through everything and you become a cynic. You know, cynic, as Oscar Wilde used to say, someone knows the price of everything, but the value of nothing. Hmm. And you can see that when we realize that what we're saying as an ideal is really because I'm selfish or I'm hypocritical, or whatever it is. Everything's stripped down through deconstruction. And so as Solzhenitsyn said a long time ago, suspicion becomes the worldview. Because if there's no truth, all that's left is power. Everything you say to me, everything you do to me is based on your power over me. So I've got to listen to you. And cynicism and suspicion are a protective device. I've got to figure out what you're trying to lay on me. And if I can figure out that, I'll be safe. So we're all cynics and we mistrust. And as Solzhenitsyn said, it's a terrible thing when mistrust and suspicion become the worldview of a generation. Hmm. Because you think of something simple like a family. It depends on love and trust in a very positive way. It would be corrosive if all children were cynical about their parents and all parents cynical about their kids and so on. But that's true of the citizen. If we have to mistrust everything the president says or a newspaper writes, eventually that cynicism will undermine freedom. And it'll be the end of the American Republic. Cynicism is deadly. Mm. Now, you got to have strong grounds for something better.
0: Well, I thank God that uh, we have some strong grounds for Christianity to combat that cynicism. But you know, I'm not sure how, how up to date you are on the uh, on the Frozen franchise, the Disney movies. If you've seen those before, but uh, essentially the there's two of them, and they're both deconstructionist movies. The first one is decent, but but the second one is very very strong on the deconstructionism. And I've often joked around and my friends laugh at me because they know how much I hate uh, Frozen 2. But what you've just explained is really the core of the reason that I cannot stand that movie. And and, and since the moment that I saw it, really had a problem with it because it it teaches children. It's a deconstructionist narrative, and it teaches children that they should be suspicious of and mistrust their parents, their uh, heritage, and the society. That they came from uh, and so we even see this in our in our children's movies and in our disney movies which were you know once the main fairy tale uh, uh fairy storyteller so uh we see this all over the place and so what you're trying to offer in the book instead is to uh the subtitles to in, in, an invitation to living a an examined life what do you mean by an examined life what is that
1: well that phrase goes back to socrates the unexamined life In other words, the life that you don't care enough about to think and explore what it means. The unexamined life's not worth living. Now, of course, if Socrates was right, many, many people, in fact, most including people at universities, are leading lives not worth living because they simply haven't thought about it. So my book is a challenge to people to think about it, to care enough to think through the meaning of life. But I'm not trying to ram any opinion down. I'm just to set out the pathway by which they can do that rationally and responsibly and come to their own conclusions. As I said, you can follow this pathway. Some might come an atheist or something like that, which I would deeply regret, but people have choice and they have freedom, but the pathway is there. that's what the book's about, I hope far mm. more would read it and come to know the joy of knowing our Lord as you and I have.
0: Mm. So examining your life to see if you're living a life that is worth a living. That's a dangerous invitation. I know from reading different thinkers that there's um, several, uh, whether you want to call them the existential, or maybe, or maybe with the existentialist would fall into this category, uh, or we can think of absurdist, absurdist who come to say, after examining life, that, that life is absurd, or that there's no meaning to it,
1: mm.
0: and that, uh, that there's really no point in trying to live life well. How would you respond to uh, people like this? It, what, it, or maybe give the audience some examples of people who have come to that conclusion, and then your response well, to them.
1: The simple answer is that every thought is thinkable, but not every thought is livable. Hmm. In other words, the test run is what matters. So people, life is absurd. OK, try and live that way for a week in a consistent way. You can't. Hmm. People have some, Nietzsche called it a danger point. Say someone says it's all absurd. Or I think of a person who said to me, everything's a matter of chemical reductionism, including love. And then say that to someone you really love. Your girlfriend or your wife or your husband, there's some point at which people realize that yes, they can think that way. We're free to think anything, but we can't live every way. And when you hit the road and hit the wall, then people think again. A friend of mine, um, Aaron, became a follower of Jesus many, many years ago. He was an atheist organizing draft resistors in Europe in the 60s, dropping out of Harvard. Came to Brie for a few days. I wasn't there when he came. He was very intrigued, although he was an atheist, but he was passionate about justice, concerned for the Vietnam War. And he left saying, I'll, I'll try out these ideas as I go around. And he was hitchhiking in Spain. And he was with a, a couple who were professors from Cambridge University. And he engaged them for several hours while he was hitchhiking. And the man literally said everything was chemical reductionism. And then my friend said to him, you mean your love for your wife? She was sitting next to him. Of course, he said. And his wife burst into tears. Hmm. And my friend, who wasn't a Christian then, thought, wow. And that was what made him see the inconsistency And he became a serious searcher.
0: Wow. I really, really love that line. All ideas are thinkable, but not livable. Mm -hmm. I think that one of the the thinkers who has put forward these ideas and that I see a lot of people in our uh, culture right now are being really captured by is Albert Camus. Mm-hmm. and uh, in his answers to the question of the meaning of life. I know that you deal with Camus in the book. What are what are your uh, evaluations and responses to uh, Camus and others like him who say that the only answer to the meaning of life is to accept its absurdity?
1: Well, when I was a teenager, Camus was my hero. You know, I read... Nietzsche, whom I read more now, Sartre, whom I found rather a cold fish, but Camus. He is passionate and compassionate. But at the end of the day, his absurdity left him with meaninglessness. And if you read something like his book, The Plague, it's an incredible book. Dr. Rieu is the humanist atheist fighting against the plague. And the plague, of course, is evil his picture of evil. But after the burial of one of his friends, can't remember the exact words, it's many, many, many years ago since I read it, he says, you know, we face never ending defeat. In other words, in the face of absurdity, you can be brave, courageous, tackle it. What are you assuming, and what do you hope you will do? So his later book was called The Myth of Sisyphus, Mm -hmm. You remember Sisyphus as the poor man condemned to roll the boulder up the hill, and it rolled down again. Roll it up, roll down. In other words, the picture of heroic futility. Mm -hmm. Sadly, that was Camus. And there's a lot of evidence that towards the end of his life, he was actually rethinking much more uh, his Christian faith. There's even some who argue that he was secretly baptized in Paris. I don't know if that's true. But I love Camus and his writing, but at the end of the day, you have a heroism that's futile.
0: Mm. That's a strange phrase to even contemplate heroic futility. Um, And once again, one of those things that is thinkable, but not livable. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's great. You said how what you're trying to invite people to is to uh, walk out this path to, going from living a non-examined life to an examined life you said you're not going to force any one destination or opinion on them but you still want to invite them down that pathway your hope being that they would find christ in that path to be able to invite people down that pathway uh but while still saying i'm going to allow the, the the decision up to you not trying to force anything onto you Um, That that shows, I think, a high degree of confidence in uh, your answer that you put forward being Christianity, the gospel in Jesus Christ. Where does that confidence come from to be able to invite people onto this journey, but uh, not force any one answer on them?
1: Well, you're right. Uh, Just in responding to you, I would say I have a double confidence. One is the notion of freedom. The heart of freedom is the freedom of the heart. So everybody has to think it through and come to their own conclusions. No one should be forced on anyone else, whether coercively or dazzled by arguments like the cosmological argument. Many people are incredibly impressed, but actually unpersuaded. People have to think it through for themselves. So you're right, I have a very high view of freedom and responsibility and challenging people to think it through for themselves. But more importantly, confidence in truth and in the sovereignty of God too. So if the Christian faith is true, other faiths when they get close may share a point here or two or there, but many people to the degree they reject the Christian faith are off into wonderland one way or another fantasy and unreality so take Elijah talking to the prophets of Baal you know he's one man against 850 and the royal court against him and the people sitting on the fence no one's on his side what does he say he doesn't say come back to God come back to God Israel will fall apart like some preachers he says no no if Baal is god follow Baal. Now that's you read that in 1 Kings 17 and 18 that's very daring. If Baal is god follow Baal. How can he dare to say that because he knows the Lord is God and Baal isn't. So when he tries to follow Baal he'll hit his head against the wall again. And again and again you see people who would you like to follow? Who do you have in mind, as Dallas Willard used to say? Follow them right to the ruddy end, as C.S. Lewis said. Push people to the logic of their presuppositions, as Francis Schaeffer used to say. I like Lewis's follow it to the ruddy end, but you get the idea. The more people are true to what they say is true, which is not true, at some point they're bound to hit a snag. And then they may say, well, that's not adequate. Let me look for something that has a better answer at that point. And the gospel does.
0: Yeah. What if we think through it that way? It, it seems to be saying that, uh, that our God, the God of the Bible, is the God of the examined life. That he's the God who invites people to ask the difficult questions, to examine their lives, to examine him. I think of Jesus whenever... Uh, um, John the Baptist's disciples come to him saying, are you really the Christ? Are you really the one we've been waiting for? And Jesus tells them to look at the evidence. Mm-hmm. He says, look, look at the the lame who are walking, the blind who see. Uh, he, he invites them to l- look, uh, it's okay to question and That's then true. bring the evidence back to him. Uh, mm-hmm. what, what do you think that says about God and about the gospel that it invites this kind of inquiry and it invites this kind of, Uh, um, critical thought
1: well I think it's part of the way God's made us in his image and likeness we're not only rational we're responsible and he addresses us as responsible people and takes Mm. our responses seriously come let us reason together he says and so on and so on the Lord treats us as adults
0: Mm. I like that so we've talked about the examine life and what you're doing in the, in the book with inviting people to that. But what about the, the, the second part of it, which is the, the invitation to a life of meaning? Uh, what does it mean to have meaning in life? What, if you, if you describe that, what is it, what does it look like? What does it feel like?
1: Well, a, a, a meaning is a faith or a philosophy or a worldview that gives you reality understood at its best and most complete. So people have described meaning as lenses like spectacles, which ones are right for our eyes that help us see the world well, a view of the world, a worldview, and Mm so on. Now, of course, only the one that is true will help us see the world everywhere. Every idea may help you somewhere, might explain this or that, but not comprehensively. So what I've tried to do in the book is describe the phases that a thinking person's search will go through. Most people, as we said earlier, aren't thinking. So phase one, a time for questions. No one's a seeker until life becomes a question or calls them in question. And that's what constitutes a seeker or a searcher. Until then, people are satisfied, whatever they believe. But that first stage is absolutely critical today because most people are comfortable and complacent, as you said in the beginning. And they need to have a jolt to thrust them out onto the search. That's the first stage, a time for questions. What you've just been talking about is more of the second stage, a time for answers, a rather comparative stage when someone with a question looks at all the possible answers to see which one really fits the bill. In other words, is adequate and illuminating. Stage three is a time for evidences. You mentioned that too. In other words, if this answer is incredible, adequate, illuminating in terms of answering my questions, then we have to say, is it true? Now, that stage is missing in the postmodern era because nobody bothers about truth.
0: Mm.
1: But then, of course, people who believe without truth are almost bound to be vulnerable to doubts or criticisms. Later, ah, you believe because you have a need a la Freud, or whatever. So that stage, a time for evidences is incredibly important. And then the fourth stage, a time for commitments. It has to be the whole person committing themselves to what they've come to believe.
0: That's really great. I like those four stages. That's a really helpful way of thinking about it. And I like that you included in there the evidence, the time to so question, is, is this answer uh, true? I think that... What a lot of people base their commitment on is, is therapeutic reasons. Does the answer I've chosen mm-hmm. make me feel good more than is it true? But in the first stage, uh, in light of the context that we live in, like we already talked about one that's complacent and cynical, uh, how do you invite people onto that, into that questioning? How do you, in a sense, wake up people in that first stage to begin uh, examining and asking these questions?
1: Well, there are various, if you look at people beginning their search. Well, for a start, many people do it in the big seven. In other words, the years, as it used to be called, 18 to 25. And that's the period in life when many people discover who they are What they're about in the world, who they're going to marry in life, and the job they choose, and so on. That's a typical period in which many, if not most people, think. Then you have crises, health crises, economic crises, whatever it is. People often are forced to think. COVID's made many people think. Mm. Then you have what I call, or Solzhenitsyn called, the crowbars of history. In other words, grand events which shatter people. You take, say, the fall of, of the Soviet Union, and all over the world, people gave up on classical Marxism. Mm-hmm. What I'm really interested in is the, the last one, which I've explored. I've got a whole book coming out on this one later called, called Signals of Transcendence. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's Peter Berger's term. He was my mentor and friend, and we intended to write a book together. And sadly, he died, so I've written one myself coming out later, but what he you talking about, people have experiences that are very profound and they puncture what they used to believe and they point to something else that would have to be true if that experience is real hmm. and they become seekers. You know, the, the best known example in the last century is C.S. Lewis. You remember he was an atheist and an atheist, a dogmatic atheist, for more than 10 years as a searcher. But what set him off? He said, I was surprised by joy. Now he said, Joy, I expect. Intense joy. Nietzsche says, Joy wills eternity. It's not pleasure. Pleasure is just the five senses drinking, eating food, making love. It's not happiness, that's circumstantial. Joy is something far deeper. And Lewis had such a profound experience of joy, it made him into a seeker for more than 10 years before he found and came to know Christ. That's a signal of transcendence. And I've got mm. 10 chapters, each one based on a story, but they're all in answer to what you said, Aaron people going along happily in life and then an experience jolts them.
0: Mm. Well, that sounds great. And I'm, I'm excited to hear about that new book. And it sounds as like, though wasn't it Peter Berger who described uh, our, our loss of transcendence in the modern world, a world without windows? Is
1: oh, exactly. that his phrase?
0: Exactly. Yeah. So the signals of transcendence would be like a light shining through the window. Exactly. Right, calling us to the world outside.
1: And I think as more and more people realize that, they realize this secularist conspiracy that the world within the windows is all there is, we've got to shatter it. And, of course, that thinking goes all the way back to Plato. You remember his famous parable of the cave, the prisoners who only saw flickering shadows in the wall because of a fire behind them and so on. Outside was the sun. And one of them, who escaped and discovered the sun, went back in, and they thought he was a madman because all they knew was the shadows in the wall. And there are many atheists. <laughs> you remember the famous line in Hamlet, there are more things in life, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. We've got to help many of our fellow uh, citizens in today's world. They can break out of the cave, break out of this world without windows and come to know the sun, S-U-N and S-O-N
0: hmm that's excellent we can do another episode on the the forthcoming book but just give us just give us one or two well what are one or two of those signs of transcendence that you or si- i'm sorry signals or transcendence that you uh, well, draw all, people they're to all
1: they're all different for everyone but let me share my i can tell you my wife's but let me share my favorite one Do you know the story of W.H. Auden, one of the greatest poets of the 20th century? When he was young, he was an atheist, he was left-wing, radical, and a gay. He fought on the anti-fascist side in the Civil War in Spain, but when World War II started to get close, he came to New York to escape it all to be able to write as a poet. And you know he followed it all closely. He lived in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. There was no television in those days, so to keep up with what was happening in Europe, you went to the cinema, and every week there was documentary news. And one weekend he went to the cinema in Yorkville, unbeknownst to him, most of the people were in a German-speaking part, and America was not in the war, so he was an Englishman, and they were Germans. But the documentary was on the Siege of Poland, Hitler's Siege of Poland. And Nazi stormtroopers were bayoneting women and children, brutally. Mm. And of course, the Germans were backing their own people. Kill them, kill them, they shouted out in the darkness. Borden, as an atheist, sat there appalled. He said, I needed an absolute to judge Hitler as absolutely wrong. He said, all my upbringing, everything was relative. There are no absolutes but I knew I couldn't say Hitler was just culturally wrong or relatively wrong, whatever. He was evil, absolutely evil. And Auden said, I'm concertining it somewhat, he said, I left the cinema a seeker after an unconditional absolute and met Jesus. Hmm. In other words, it was the inconsistency of palpable evil and the impossibility of saying that's only relatively wrong. No, it was absolutely wrong.
0: Mm, that's excellent. I can't wait to hear more of those stories in, 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 uh, in, in your book on signals of transcendence. But going back to, to the invitation to the path to meaning and experiencing meaning in life, one of the most influential public uh, intellectuals today is Jordan Peterson, and he talks about meaning in life very often. Are you familiar at all the, with, with Peterson, and have you read or listened to any of his work? And if so, what, is, what, what are your thoughts on what he has to say?
1: I had dinner with him last week. Oh, okay. <laughs> he is a profound thinker and a passionate thinker. I enjoyed the meal and was very impressed with his mind. He is courageous, and he is impassioned, and he is open to looking for the meaning of life. He is searching himself. I don't want to go any further in saying what we talked about, but quite clearly from the interviews, even yesterday, I think he said something like on Joe Rogan, Mm -hmm. Christian faith is way more true than just true.
0: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Now, some people listen to the search for the meaning of life, say, listen to arguments like a theistic proof, just as an armchair exercise. Jordan Peterson is staked on it with his whole life, and I greatly admired him, and my heart went out to him. He he was a wonderful man, an extraordinary human being, very courageous, too, of course, in his fight against all that wokeism is doing to the universities and to business,
0: Wow! Wow! Well, I'm glad to hear that, and I actually just I haven't seen the whole episode yet, but I did hear that same clip as well. He, yeah, you know, where he said that uh, the Bible uh, is, is like is the truth beneath truth. I think is the way he put it. It made me think of the way that uh, Schaefer used to talk about mm-hmm. uh, how Christianity is not just truth, but it is truth with a capital T. True truth,
1: he used
0: to call Tr- it. True truth.
1: <laughs> People used to laugh at him, but I call it. The reality of reality. That's why it's important you take freedom. Our Lord says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. There's no freedom without truth. So in the postmodern world, we've got no freedom. So people have got to start taking some of these things much more seriously again.
0: Hmm. Well, in the need for them to take it seriously and what we talked about earlier, with um, the pervasive cynicism in our age. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there is hope for the cynic? Maybe someone who's listening to this and is very cynical. What would you say to them?
1: Now, as we said earlier, cynicism is a protection. So it serves people. Now, a lot of people are cynical because they're protecting something precious. So our Lord used the wonderful word, the treasure of your heart. And when I'm talking to people, some are very dogmatic, highly belligerent, incredibly cynical. But I always try and find, love them, listen to them, ask them respectful questions. What is the treasure of their heart? And some of the most blatant cynics are actually people who are protecting something incredibly precious to them, so important, They want to have this armor of cynicism to keep it safe. Now, when that treasure of their heart, what's precious to them is triggered, then they think enough and care enough to search.
0: Mm. That's great. As we get here close to the finish, uh, do you have any last word or anything that you want to leave listeners with? Hopefully that they go and purchase the book, but any, any last thing that you want people to take away from this conversation or what you want to leave readers with whenever they get your book?
1: Well, Aaron, great question. So many people put the search today against the backdrop of people's just being fed up and sick with all the nastiness of politics and the scandals and the church and so on. In other was against the cynicism of what we're seeing. But in my reading, and I've read a lot recently about civilization, the rise and fall and decline and so on, we're at a civilizational moment. The Western world is in an advanced point of decline. And everyone who's analyzed the fall of Rome and every other civilization, they point out that at the end of the day, Whatever made them great in the first place, the dynamic, the source of the dynamic, which in the West, of course, is faith. West is The West is essentially the child of Christendom and the Christian faith. If that is renewed, a civilization can be. If it's not, it's weak or corrupt. It declines and you go on to a different civilization, as so many have. Now, of course, take that notion of renewal of faith. Take the resurrection, take the valley of the dry bones in Ezekiel. You know, what we're talking about in individuals discovering faith and then people of faith being revived, renewed, awakened in this cultural moment that is a civilizational moment, we're talking about truths that have to be adequate for the future of humanity. What's the highest view of human dignity? What's the basis of freedom? What's the foundation of justice? How do we search for peace, community? Go on down the line. Which of them, which faith, worldview, philosophy gives you anywhere close to the Bible and the good news of Jesus? So we're talking about something which is the best news ever for the future of humanity.
0: That's great, and I agree, and I love the the rooting it in the resurrection. That's excellent. Well, I just want to thank you so much for being here with us today, Oz, and, and having another great conversation. Uh, for you guys who are listening, watching, uh, I'm going to have a link to Oz's new book, The Great Quest in the show notes. So if you want to get it for yourself or you want to get a copy for a friend, family member, just go to the link in the description below and you'll be able to get your copy of The Great Quest for yourself and to share with others. Hope you do that. Anything else that we uh, mentioned in here, I'll have that linked in the show notes as well. So, Oz, just thank you so much for your time today. Uh, It means a lot. I always really look forward to and enjoy getting to have these conversations with you. And uh, this one was certainly no disappointment. And so thank you for being with us again on Filter. My
1: pleasure, Aaron. God bless.
0: Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating or review. To catch up later from me, you can go to my website, AaronChamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to Do-